Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Introduction, Theurgy, Magic, and Mysticism by Dr. Claire Fanger. This is the book by which God can be seen face-to-face in this life. This is the book by which anyone at all can be saved and unhesitatingly be led forth into eternal life. This is the book which was the most precious thing given by the Lord, more precious than anything else except the sacraments. This is the book by which corporeal and visible nature can speak, converse, and be instructed by that which is incorporeal and invisible. From the final paragraph of the Liber Iratus Honori. Naked as they may be, abstracted from context and presented in the evident innocence of their wish fulfillment, these claims, which conclude the 14th century sworn book of Honorius, testify to the persistence of two fundamental questions central to this volume. One, How may the divine manifest in this world and in things that human beings can know? Two, how may human beings, unfit for direct knowledge of the divine, nevertheless engage with divine things in order to be saved? There are other, more conventional responses to these questions in the later Middle Ages, but this volume is about some of the less conventional conventional ones. The essays collected here look at a variety of alternative views of the relationship of human beings with the divine, as recorded in texts that engage traditional theologies and liturgies in unusual ways, sometimes weaving together sources from more than one religion, and sometimes from sources commonly regarded as magical. Some of these texts were condemned by medieval and early modern theologians as being in the same class as demonic magic. Despite their status, then and now, outside the canon of medieval religious and devotional writings, these texts offer important perspectives on the study of religion in the Middle Ages. In general, they attest to the plurality of visions of religious practice, not only in the late Middle Ages, but into the 16th century. 
they also demonstrate that this plurality included fertile cross-cultural exchange. Their abundance in manuscript attests to an increasing interest in alternative forms of access to the divine, and perhaps also to a parallel anxiety that ordinary liturgies and sacraments might not be sufficient to procure salvation. Something here that I, I have to tell you might be confusing to some folk within the practical world of spiritual occultism um, and spirituality in general, um, because it's so commonly seen that, that magicians and grimoire workers wanted to become like God, and that's often bandied about these days. But as Dr. Fanger said in her two points uh, about the human beings cannot unfit with for direct knowledge of the divine. Um, that's because it, the idea that there was a part of the substance of God within you was a heresy. It was the, one of the things that people believed the least. It was not something that people were allowed to believe or that they, they weren't allowed to believe that they could become like gods or God because there was a part of God in them. That was not a common perception and it was heretical. So the idea of how can we contact the divine even though there is no divine within us, that's the context a lot of these writers were coming from. Even the grimoire and magical practitioners. Um, that's not something we realize often today, and we really need to keep that in mind as part of the hermeneutic project of recovering an understanding of the time and context of these original writers. So that's why Dr. Fanger here says, regarding the plurality and cross-cultural exchange between these religious and esoteric uh, writers, their abundance in manuscript attests to an increasing interest in alternative forms of to access to the divine, and perhaps also to uh, the parallel anxiety that ordinary liturgies and sacraments might not be sufficient to procure salvation. That itself is also, of course, another heretical view, and However, probably in this case, one that they, these uh, grimoire writers and magical practitioners were, were okay with. Um, it was sort of a way to bypass the fundamental heresy of saying that there's God in you, which God is not in you in these periods of time. Mystics who said that found their lives drastically shorter than expected. Finally, these various approaches to the divine also bear upon natural philosophy, science, and rationality, demanding more nuanced approaches to the relationships between scientific practices and devotional ones. Until fairly recently, these works had been, remained almost untouched by historians, sadly. Starting in the late 1980s, there began to be a marked increase in scholarship on medieval ritual magic texts and, relatedly, on the broader problem of magic. Over the past 10 years, the trickle of new articles, books, and editions of these texts have, has increased to something that might almost be called a spate. In my 1998 collection, Conjuring Spirits, I complained that the area of texts and manuscripts of medieval intellectual magic still had too little coverage beyond what was available in Lynn Thorndike's History of Magic and Experimental Science completed in 1958. Now the area looks completely different. In fact, important new discoveries are coming so thick and fast that it's often difficult for a publication to keep up. Getting a new discovery into print before it is outdated is as a challenge that can is a challenge that can be both exhilarating and frustrating for those involved.
recent books, this is a note, that advance the study of medieval magic through detailed attention and materials and manuscript include Hedegaard's edition of Liber Iratus, Nicolas Vailperot, Les Images Astrologiques, Au Moyen Age et la Renaissance, Speculations Intellectuelles et Pratiques Magiques, That's, and uh, Jean-Patrice Boudot, Boudet, Entre Sciences et Negromance, Astrologie, Divination et Magie dans l'Occident Medieval. And also Don Schemer's Binding Words, Textual Amulets in the Middle Ages. Julian Veronese, La Ars Notoria, Un Moyen Âge, Introduction et Edition Critique. Benedict Lang, Unlocked Books, Manuscripts of Learned Magic in the Medieval Library of Central Europe. And Frank Klassen, The Transformations of Magic, Illicit Learned Magic in the Middle Ages and Renaissance and a number of other important books and editions are in works. Uh, for uh, I read that list because it's very important, I think, for many people in the spiritual sphere to realize how much incredible work is coming out from scholarship these days that we don't hear about through things like Weiser and Llewellyn. So. And uh, a good another linguistic note, as daunting as it is maybe to consider looking at texts in Latin, Hebrew, French, German, even Aramaic manuscripts, learning any of those languages is far easier than learning a Slavic language or most Asian languages. So, you know, maybe challenge yourself and take an intensive course or uh, consider, consider it. You can do it. I believe in you. I suck at languages, but I still figured out a way to learn seven. For this book, I have solicited contributions from scholars whose work has made significant inroads into this former wilderness territory. Taken together, the essays collected here shed light on connections between the domains of religion and science as continuous aspects of habitus for writers and operators of these texts. They show how necessary it is to consider medieval and early modern epistemology as a whole, within the context of all the kinds of texts that concern it. In the history of ideas, the magical has often emerged as a label for an idea or approach that apparently should have been broken away from earlier, a problem of fossilized thinking. Uh, note, a classic exposition of this view of magic as fossilized thinking is found in Brian Vickers's essay on the function of analogy in the occult in Hermeticism and Ren the Renaissance, Intellectual History and the Occult in Early Modern Europe, edited by Ingrid Merkel and Alan D. G. Debus, Washington, D.C., Folger Shakespeare Library, 1988. A classic deconstruction of this article is performed by Christopher Larrick, oh, that's a buddy of mine, in The Occult Mind, Ithaca, Cornell University Press, 2007. Definitely need to get Chris, Chris on the podcast. His classic work on uh, Derrida and Agrippa in, from Brill, uh, publishing, so it costs a couple hundred bucks to get the book, but is a, is a masterpiece. Um, debated his points often, of course, but aren't we all? Yet, if modern science has tended to define itself by opposition to a magic that was in principle older, less knowing, and less progressive, at the same time, the process of normal science has always pragmatically adapted itself to the modes of thought, explanation, and experimental practice of the time. So also has normal magic, of course, 
I mean, that does go sort of without saying. But I guess that's a point that gets lost. Both of these things adapt themselves. So to accuse one of this fallacy doesn't really make sense. In different ways, the cosmic infusion of knowledge sought by the liturgy of the Ars Notoria, discussed by Veronese, the spiritual cosmology detailed in Antonio da Montalmo's De Occultis et Manifestis, discussed by Vile Perot, and the spirit conjuring diaries of Humphrey Gilbert, discussed by Classen, all show how medieval and early modern intellectual writers might associate the angelic worlds and the worlds of human knowledge at once experimentally, scientifically, and spiritually. Another aspect of the pre-modern epistemology illuminated by these essays is the purposeful bricolage of Jewish, Christian, and Islamic ritual elements that appear in the text. While the mutual influences of medieval Jewish, Christian, and Islamic writers on philosophy and science have long been a subject of examination for intellectual historians, the interaction between these groups on typological, angelological, and liturgical levels has been much harder to study, in part because of restrictions imposed by disciplinary boundaries, but more significantly, because the data for such interactions depends so strongly on texts that are examined here in depth, in some cases for the first time. Many essays in this volume are concerned with key points of this intercultural and interreligious conversation. Topics range from the Latin Liber Ratiales and Liber De Essentia Spiritum, discussed by Sophie Page, to new findings on the probable relationship between Christian, Jewish, and Muslim influences on the Liber Iratis Honori, discussed by Sophie Page, to new findings on the probable relationship between Christian, Jewish, and Muslim influences on the Liber Iratis Honori by Jan Wienstra and Caitlin Messler, to analyses of the way Jewish and Christian identities are formed through and against ideas about each other's liturgical practices, as shown in essays by myself, Harvey Hames, and Elliot Wolfson. It is only by opening up the history of ideas, as well as the various histories of science and spirituality, to contemplation of texts of this kind, that we can begin to form a truly historical picture of medieval and early modern life. Texts and Context. It is such an amazing point, typical of Dr. Fanger's outstanding scholarship and mind to point out just the obvious that if you ignore certain prevalent texts, you fail to understand the history of that time and place and its people. It's that simple. <laughs> A lot of arguments are made for the study of esoteric and excluded texts, as we looked at yesterday with uh, Honograph's article. But you don't need to make any obscure argument. All you need to make is the essential argument that it's not a picture if you're covering up part of the picture. No one just wants to look at the Mona Lisa's nose, as far as I know. Maybe her feet. That's a different thing, though. <laughs> part 1. Texts and Contexts. One goal of this book is to bring forward new research data for scholars who specialize in medieval manuscripts of magic but it is also hoped that the book may provide some useful information to a broader audience of readers interested in contiguous areas of medieval, social, cultural, and religious history. Because not all potential readers will be familiar with the texts under discussion 
in this volume. What follows is a brief conspectus, partly to give novice readers a thumbnail sketch of these relatively obscure texts, partly to indicate something of the way the historical narrative around them will be further changed by the essays in this book. The Ars Notoria, or Notary Art. The Ars Notoria was a text ascribed to Solomon, containing a lengthy set of prayers and rituals practiced for the purpose of gaining knowledge from angels. It was one of the most common and popular works of medieval angel magic. Yet, until recently, it had not been deemed worthy of a critical edition. According to Julian Veronese, who has produced the first critical edition of the text and is the scholar most intimate with its history, it probably emerged in the late 12th century in northern Italy, probably in the region of Bologna. Given that the period of emergence of the Ars Notoria corresponds with the rise of the universities, it is perhaps unsurprising that the sought-for knowledge here is curricular knowledge. The work petitions angels to transmit knowledge of the seven liberal arts, philosophy and theology, in the order in which they were supposed to have been learned by the student. The operator of the ritual is aided in this quest by an elaborate set of meditative figures, the note, or notes, whence, according to the text's own etymology, is derived, from the, is derived the word notoria. The word appears to be related to notary, and scribes do sometimes interchange the two spellings for an interesting discussion of the relation between the, between them and co-development of the terms notary and not, notary and notary see Veronese la ars notoria en moyen age age the enormous appeal of the text may be judged not only by the number of manuscripts in circulation there is also more than one early printed edition but also by the number of theological warnings issued about it Note, uh, for discussion of the early printed editions, also see Veronese, Lars Notoria. Perhaps the most frequently repeated caveat had to do with the likelihood that the prayers using words in unknown languages might summon demons, despite all assertions to the contrary. <laughs> Yet even though condemnations of the text were frequent, it is also clear, as will be seen below in the case of John of Morigny, that at least some people encountering it for the first time had no sense of it as a condemned or dangerous work, but rather apprehended it, at least at first, as a viable set of prayers that sought reasonable benefits by legitimate means. It's worthwhile noting that there's not really a distinction between prayer and magic for many uh, magical and theological writers throughout history. Uh, even today, meditation and most forms of magic would be in the Catholic churches can considered a subcategory of prayer. The prayers themselves, at least those that do not use unknown names, there are many lengthy prayers in a medley of Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldean, and Arabic. Aramaic, Arabic. Chaldean is actually Aramaic, but Arabic is Arabic. Use standard liturgical formula and are indistinguishable from other Catholic prayers by style or content. Depictions of angels often decorate the pages. Some part of the popularity of the Ars Notoria was thus probably due to its self-representation as sacred. No doubt its proliferation was helped along too by the pragmatic nature of its advertised goals, 
which might potentially ease the expense of university study, reducing time spent on education and the overall cost of books and exemplars. I love the idea that they're summoning angels and using magical prayers to <laughs> expedite their studies. By the late 14th century, the text existed in several versions, and copies from this period can be found deriving from many European locations. The earliest, or A, version, as Veronese labels it in his edition, is an unglossed ritual containing prayers, note, and some mythological, mytho-historical context, but almost no ritual instruction. A slightly later version, the B version, includes the original prayers and note, and adds an extensive gloss containing ritual instructions and further mytho-historical context. A gloss is sort of a overview, review, notation added to the text. The gloss offers clues to the use and reception of the basic liturgy, answering some important questions about how the ritual was supposed to be performed and how it was understood and thought about. You could actually say that these commentaries I'm doing is in, sense, in a sense a gloss, an audio gloss on academic studies. Prior to the work of Veronese, the relation between the various versions of the notary art was unknown, and the glossed version was essentially unread. In his chapter in this volume, Veronese gives a descriptive and interpretive account of the glossed version, describing the operation instructions as represented in the glosses in Paris, Bibliothèque Nationale de France, Lat 9336, then zooming out to treat more broadly some of the operative resemblances between the Ars Notoria Plat Neoplatonic Theurgy and Christian sacraments. As was the common fate of many medieval liturgies, the notary art was frequently taken apart and its components repurposed. It's amazing. Its prayers, verbal formulae, and structuring ideas were reused in other works, some more nearly and some more distantly related to it. The work that is most explicitly connected to it is the Book of the Flowers of Heavenly Teachings by John of Morigny. Let us also remember that liturgy essentially means a public work for a common good. That's an important definition for non-theological listeners. John of Morigny. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but either way, John was a monk of the Benedictine order of Morigny, educated at Chartres and Orléans, and active in the first quarter of the 14th century. What is known about him comes almost entirely from his own Liber Florum Celestis Doctrinae, Book of the Flowers of Heavenly Teaching, which, in addition to containing a lengthy prayer text modeled on the Ars Notoria, and similarly designed to petition angels for the transmission of curricular knowledge, includes many autobiographical passages. John's writings are a key source of information about the Ars Notoria. Since he describes his own and others' experiences of its operation before learning, via a vision induced by the Ars Notoria itself, that the prayers in outlandish tongues had, in fact, been corrupted by subtle insertion of demonic invocations. By his own account, John discovered the Ars Notoria when he was a student, too poor to afford books. He had acquired a work of necromancy from a colleague and copied as much of it as he could, but he was beset by doubts about pursuing its rituals. 
after consulting a Lombard doctor named Jacob, he was directed to the Ars Notoria, from which, according to the doctor, he might obtain all the knowledge he sought without danger to his soul. Guided by the doctor, John first approached the Ars Notoria as a sacred text and a wholesome alternative to the demonic conjurations he had been contemplating. As he used the art, he learned better. The Ars Notoria opened vistas on a dark visionary landscape filled with nightmarish forms and demons masquerading as monks or persons of the Trinity. John was eventually helped to free himself by Christ, John the Evangelist, and especially the Virgin Mary. When he finally laid aside the Ars Notoria, still wishing to obtain what he calls the good part of his purpose, he sought from the Virgin, Mary, the Virgin permission to compose his own art, similarly intended to infuse the operator with knowledge of the liberal arts, philosophy, and theology, with only thirty simple prayers. The Virgin agreed, and the book of thirty prayers, the primary liturgy of the Liber Florum, was delivered, its express purpose to supplant and destroy the corrupt Ars Notoria. It offered seekers a worthy alternative mode of obtaining knowledge through instruction from the Virgin. This text is a recent discovery, unlike the Ars Notoria, which, though chronically understudied in the past, has always been known to exist in printed books as well as manuscripts. The text of the Flowers of Heavenly Teaching was not actually known to survive at all much before the 1990s. That's fascinating. It's just always a good reminder to people that all the thing you, know, you hear sometimes that everything's already been studied or all the old things have been discovered. It's really not true. I've said this before. Everything from ancient Aramaic spells to archaeological finds to civilizations and <clears throat> magical manuscripts, we're discovering stuff all the time. And so uh, if you think you can do that without universities or places to access and learn interpretation theory and learn languages and preserve texts, I don't know how else you'd do it. Unless knowledge should just be held by the elite few, of course. But maybe you could argue that's what a university is. Except the fact that it's not. I got it in without any money or even an undergrad. So there you go. <clears throat> in the Grandes Chroniques de France, there is recorded for the year 1323 a somewhat sensational account of the burning of a work by a monk who attempted claiming instruction from the Virgin Mary to bring back the condemned Ars Notoria in another guise. But it is not until 1987 that the first notice of a connection between the monk described here and an actual text in a manuscript in the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek is suggested in a footnote to an article on the Ars Notoria by Jean Dupib. In the 1990s, independent discoveries of several more manuscripts by Sylvia Barnet in France and myself and Nicholas Watson in Ontario, go Canada, show that the Liber Florum did not in fact come to an, the abrupt end that one might have attempted to assume from the chronique account. A lost manuscript rediscovered, eh? Indeed, the work continued to be copied and used throughout the fifth through the fifteenth century, largely in a monastic context, and latest the latest known manuscript dating from the early sixteenth century. Wow, that's amazing. 
this is definitely part of the heyday also of magical manuscripts prior to the uh, counter-reformation and mass book burnings by Protestants and uh, evangelische accusers saying that the church practiced magic and the church said we don't practice magic and they said well what is all this and the church is like oh yeah okay that's magic and they started burning it and requiring their priests to actually be celibate so they wouldn't be called hypocrites of course they could have just changed and said yeah we're a bunch of magical marrying priests and why not let women in at the same time just like they did in the <clears throat> Paul's days in the early gospel days but instead they didn't too bad and here we are Unfortunately, most of these are not included in the only known old compilation manuscript. In the later version, or new compilation, dated 1315, John completely rewrote the text of the Book of Figures and cut the number down to eight, seven iconic images of the Virgin and one image of an apocalyptic Christ. In my own contribution to this volume, I look at the way John casts the, revel the relation between the old and new compilation texts as parallel to the relation between the Old and New Testaments. His Old compilation is, like the Old Testament, superseded by the new work, which is its fulfillment, but the Old compilation nevertheless remains sacred in its own right. I go on to compare the Liber Florum with another work that, in another version at least, makes similar claims related to the idea of sacramental suppression, the Liber Juratis Honori. And here we are, the Liber Juratis Honori, or Sworn Book of Honorius. As it turns out, the Sworn Book of Honorius, previously known only through the version found in a handful of manuscripts in the British Library, is extant in another version as well. As reported by Jan Wienstra in chapter, chapter 4 of this volume, this new discovered version is witnessed in a manuscript of the Summa Sacramagicae, a massive compilation of magic texts circulating in Spain that was compiled in the first half of the 14th century by a redactor named Barangario Ganel. Like most of the works in this volume, the Summa Sacre Magicae has only recently been found worthy of examination. Wienstra's analysis of the Ganel version demonstrates conclusively that it belongs to a different tradition of redaction a tradition clearly prior to that in the English manuscripts that were, until now, the only known witnesses of the text. The date of origin of the sworn book has not been pinpointed with certainty. In fact, Wienstra's discoveries have overturned some of what was thought to be known about it, but circumstantial evidence still points to the early 14th century, certainly for the London version and perhaps for the earlier one as well. Like the Ars Notoria, the Sworn Book is fundamentally concerned with seeking heavenly knowledge from angels. Though, what is sought in this case is not knowledge couched in the hierarchical structure of the seven liberal arts, but rather a transformative vision. It claims that its ritual will induce a vision of God face to face, as Adam and the prophets saw him. It opens with a reference to the great name of God, which the Hebrews call Sememphoras, which doth consist of 72 letters. Um, <clears throat> it's spelt with a S because they simply are lacking either the diacritic to represent that it's a Sha, or it's the letter Sin and not Shin, but it is Shin, so it's Shem Ha Mephorash is what the 
uh, John Amorney is transcribing, which just simply means name of 72. John of Morney, too, refers to the Shemhem Foras, glossing it as a Hebrew word meaning most elect name of God, and noting it as another term for the Tetragrammaton. This much was common currency for educated Christians from the works of Jerome to Is and Isidore. The reference to the name of 72 letters, however, was not a patristic commonplace, and it seems to derive from some more direct contact with Jewish tradition. The 72-letter name referred to here, together with a number of other aspects of the text, show that the master of the sworn book was drawing consciously, though not always in a fully informed way, on ritual information from non-Christian Abrahamic traditions. Yes, that's exactly right. The name Shemham or Shemfresh was not used often as an alternate for the Tetragrammaton but definitely represents a very uh, specific stream within Judaism. Caitlin Mesler develops the relations between Jewish, Christian, and Islamic elements more fully in Chapter 3, which maps out the interreligious aspects of the text by identifying specific aspects of Jewish and Islamic angelology that are discreetly traceable in separate sections of the book. I will note here only that all of these angel magic texts, the Ars Notoria, the Liber Iratus, and the Liber Florum, seem to show certain generic family resemblances to a group of texts marking an early phase of Jewish mysticism known as the Hekelot, from it's the Hebrew for palace or temple literature. So yes, Hekelotic literature, Hekelotic literature, <laughs> literature is a uh, a big thing, along with things like the Midrash Rabbah that uh, need to be studied to really understand Jewish spirituality, the Targums of, as well, of course. <clears throat> Targum Onkelos was uh, my big study for several years. Emerging between the 3rd and 8th centuries, the Hecalot texts deal with the ascent through the heavens of post-biblical figures to visit the heavenly temples, to behold the king in his beauty, to obtain revelatory knowledge, often of the Torah, or to gain special magical powers deriving from or connected to a mystical knowledge of the Torah. While it is increasingly clear that the Ars Notoria and its avatars are not derived from Hebrew texts and show no direct influence of the Hekelot literature, they nevertheless clearly have essentially similar mystical goals. Within the Hekelot traditions, as in the Ars Notoria, a strengthening of memory, wit, and other intellectual faculties may be sought to arrive at the vision of God. Similarly, too, all knowledge is understood to be of a piece with knowledge of God, and as such, as deliverable by God, as seen in biblical precedence, precedents, Adam, Moses, Solomon, etc. For example, it is suggested near the beginning of the Hekelot Zutarti, when Moses ascended to God, he taught him as follows, If anyone finds me, finds that his mind is becoming confused, recite over it the following names, in the name of... Let my mind grasp everything that I hear and learn be it Bible, Mishnah, learning, Halachot, or Haggadot. Let me never forget anything in this world or the next. With the Ars Notoria, the aim is similarly to strengthen the faculties to climb the ladder of the liberal arts to theology. 
that is the four senses of scripture. Yes, everything leads us to theology. <laughs> I love it. The form of the work posits, at least implicitly, a transit through the angelic realms, an association clarified further in John of Morney's vision, where knowledge of theology is the culminating phase of, of a journey in which all knowledge is ultimately seen as a piece as of a piece with theology, the beginning and ending place of all intellectual activity. Yep, that's right, the queen of the sciences. While all of the medieval Christian angel magic texts share a collection of essentially similar attitudes and mytho-historical elements, it is in the Liber Euratus, in the London version, at least, that we have the clearest indication of a conscious attempt to draw upon Jewish precedents in its construction of the ritual. Liber Ratzielis, Book of Ratziel, and Liber de Essentia Spiritum, Book of the Essence of Spirits. But if the sworn Book of Honorius shows evidence of Jewish and Islamic influence, the question remains, where might this influence have come from? One source is probably commerce with living adherents of the Jewish and Islamic faiths. But this would not necessarily get the master of the sworn book any closer to records of their textual traditions. Few medieval Christian writers probably had much working knowledge of languages outside Latin and their own vernacular. It seems doubtful at least that the master of the sworn book was as skilled was a skilled reader of Arabic or Hebrew. Those few who did command several languages, however, were encouraged to spread knowledge through translation. Spain was a particularly rich area of linguistic interconnection, and therefore a rich source of translations from Arabic and Hebrew into Latin. Thus it is of interest that Vinstras seems to suggest Spain as a potential place of origin for the sworn book. As to textual sources of these traditions available in Latin, Sophie Page's chapter in this volume offers a comparative descriptive study of two texts of spirit invocation, the Liber Ratzielis and the Liber de Essentia Spiritum, which derived respectively from Jewish and Islamic milieu and circulated in Latin in the later Middle Ages. Both of these texts are understudied. There is so far no edition of the Latin Liberatialis and no study comparing the Latin text with the Hebrew edition of this book. Page herself discovered and edited the only known copy of the Liber de Essentia Spiritum. Both texts are important, however, in recasting elements of Jewish and Islamic traditions for Christian consumption. We know that the Latin Liberatialis originated as a translation of an older Hebrew magic compilation that was commissioned in Spain in the court of Alphonse the Wise. The mytho-historical premise of the text is that the angel Ratziel, Hebrew for secret of God, appeared to Adam soon after the expulsion from paradise and delivered to him a book of magic revealing the mysteries of creation. The Alphonsine version consists of seven books putatively brought together by Solomon, and a number of appended magic works as well. Sometimes individual books from this compilation were circulated separately, and some were separately known, like the Liber Shemhemforash, which is among the texts that seem to have been known to John of Morigny, and is discussed by Vinstra in this volume in the context of the sworn book. The availability of the individual books and annexations to the Liber Ratzielis makes this compilation a likely conduit for some of the evident Jewish influence noted on the theurgic texts 
dealt with in this volume. The Liber de Essentia Spiritum is a text preserved only in one known and seemingly incomplete copy. Its date of origin remains uncertain, though it must have been circulated by the early 13th century as there is a suspicious and derogatory account of it in the writings of William of Auvergne, as Sophie Page notes in Chapter 2. William's complaints, notwithstanding the topos that guides the prologue, is a familiar one from Christian hagiography. The Retreat to Solitude in the Desert The author, about whom nothing is known except that he claims to come from Seville, castigates those who remain ignorant of the perfection from which their souls are descended. During his time in the desert, he received an image of true light from his communion with spirits, and it is this divinely received knowledge that he passes on in the book. The problem addressed by the revelation is also familiar, as the author seeks to explain why the incorruptible first essence is also the creator of, and contained within, diverse, imperfect, and corruptible things. The work goes on to discuss the levels of intermediary spirits between God and man, and the spirit's degree of passability, hence potential to be influenced by man. It's an interesting way of referring to a spirit's ability to be influenced by us um, as passability. I like that sort of idea. That, that's, that should be something we talk about in our spirituality. The text breaks off before getting very far into practical instructions in the use of spirits. It is nevertheless interesting inasmuch as it adumbrates a philosophical underpinning for magic that is very friendly to theurgic principles. It may have contributed to some of the ideas received by Cecco de Ascoli and Antonio de Montalmo in the 14th century. Antonio de Montalmo Antonio de Montalmo was a doctor and astrologer writing in the second half of the 14th century. His book of occult and manifest things is extant in a single known manuscript in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Prior to the edition in this volume done by Nicolas Valparot in collaboration with Julien Veronese, the work was stu little studied and had never been edited. Beyond the fact that Antonio's work constitutes an interesting synthesis of principles extracted from a range of available magic texts, Valparot notes that Antonio is one of the earliest authors of a magic book. That's very cool. That is, one of the first to write a book under his own name that openly professes to be about magic. <laughs> well, that is definitely a risk. Though, in the 14th century, 1300s, you're safer than uh, in uh, Giordano Bruno's time, where they probably would have burned you for writing a manuscript under your own name. Of course, the church did then erect a statue in the 20th century to Giordano Bruno as a slight apology. Oops, sorry we burned you at the stake. Uh, it turned out you were right, and uh, now there's a statue. Well, there is a statue of him for now, let's say, uh, being white and male. That statue might not last long. Strange times, my friends. So, moving on. As we have seen, medieval texts concerned with invocations of spirits tend either to be pseudonymously ascribed to biblical or legendary authors, as with the Ars Notoria, Liber Ioratus, Liber Ratielis, or else carefully 
to eschew magical terminology for their own operations, as with John of Morigny. Antonio is one of the first writers, after the important precedent of Berengario Ganel, to lay claim to the production of a work of magic. Further, and perhaps more startlingly, by the word magic, Antonio intends no safe or licit sense of natural magic. <laughs> In fact, within the De Occultis et Manifestis, his use of the term magic exclusively designates actions with spirits. For those types of operation, that might normally be thought of under the heading natural magic. Antonio reserves the term astronomical or astrological. That has taken a risk. And a good thing he died of natural causes before the Counter-Reformation. The book opens on a philosophical note, with Antonio remarking the transitory and disappointing nature of earthly life, and describing the kind of knowledge that is desirable and necessary for eternal life. He cites Aristotle to the effect that the person loves God who devotes himself to speculation, and adds that it is better to engage in contemplation of noble things than base ones. Obviously, if you want to understand Christianity, you have to read pagan Aristotle, right? <laughs> Intelligences, Antonio suggests, are created with knowledge and nobility. I like that. Therefore, as noble things, they are appropriate objects of contemplation in accordance with the harmony and course of nature. It's really interesting how um, these early writers really approach spirituality and the contemplative tradition, as we'd call it today, um, in a very similar way to Rudolf Steiner does in his occult philosophy. Um, it's quite, quite remarkable, especially since we know Steiner didn't have access to these writings for the most part. He was actually just learning a tradition he was taught and then primarily was experiencing for himself and then describing as he went through it in his own life. Keeping an eye always on the natural aspect of his subject matter, Antonio shies away from mysticism, unlike the author of the Liber de Essentia Spiritum, he vaunts no divine revelations, but merely indicates that he is going to describe what is known of the theory, or universal rules, of operations with spirits. Dr. Stephen Skinner would like that. To do this, Antonio folds together in his, hypo his synthesis two types of sources. On the one hand, the astrologically oriented kinds of works that were often ascribed to Hermes, and that modern scholars therefore often refer to broadly as hermetic texts, whose primary conduit was translation from Arabic sources, and on the other, the works deriving from the Judeo-Christian tradition constructed from endogenous Latin liturgies and often ascribed to Solomon, and therefore broadly referred to as Solomonic texts. Antonio gives a rough guide to spirit summoning that references both types of operation, noting that the most powerful actions implement both magical and astrological principles. Antonio's work is interesting in its justification of magic through philosophical means, and he brings together a spirit cosmology derived from a broad array of contemporary magic texts and does his best to pin the often confusing and contradictory aspects of his sources to an idea of universal natural laws. In his adoption of the word magic, for something he would do himself, as well as in his theoretical and philosophical approach to the information he gleans from the magic texts, he knows. 
he marks a step toward the author-magicians of the early modern period. Ramon Lull Many better-known writers were also engaged in projects that aim to reduce diverse cultural phenomena to universally applicable laws. Both Ramon Lull, the Catalan philosopher and mystic 1232-1316, and Johann Reuchlin, the German philologist and Christian Kabbalist 1455-1522, distinguished themselves in different ways by seeking universally shared principles by which those of other faiths could be united under a Christian banner. Both of them also have been associated with Kabbalistic ideas. In Lull's case, the association is post facto, as Lull never claimed any association with Kabbalah. However, the term is associated with his work as early as Pica della Mirandola, who in discussing a certain type of Kabbalah said that that which is called homat ha-tzeruf, revolution or combination of letters, is a combinatory art and it is the method for gaining knowledge and it is similar to what that which we refer to as the Ars Remondi, although it proceeds in a very different manner. Really important to note here that since this book came out, and this is an amazing book that you all need to read if you're interested in grimoire and its history, authorship, and, and functions. Since this has come out, Moshe Adel overturned that, that belief and has proved that Lull did in fact have Kabbalistic manuscripts and was in touch with one of the leading Kabbalists of his day, who was, I believe, over in Italy. I already covered that article because Moshe Adel is the predecessor of Gershom Sholem has done amazing work in advancing our knowledge of historical Kabbalists and Kabbalistic texts and their transmission into other areas, mainstream disciplines, Christian thought, all of these things. So uh, that has been updated through uh, Moshe Adel's amazing work. We now know that Raman Lull did not come close to Kabbalah on his own or, but, or through para- thinking along parallel lines but as, was actually causally influenced in Kabbalistic thought. So that's changed and forcing us to relook at everything about Ramon Lull. Lull's combinatory art, which he reworked over time, comes in both long and short versions and involves circular figures that reveal different possible combinations of principles represented by letters of the alphabet. The Ars Brevis, or brief form of the art, has an A figure, a T figure, and two additional figures, one using a revolving wheel to allow different combinations to be made among the base principles. It's actually, it's interesting why Lull didn't let people know he was influenced with Kabbalistic texts and with uh, letters to and from one of the leading Kabbalists of his day. Um, It's obviously, it was an intentional choice. Um, I don't think it was because he was trying to secretly adopt Jewish thought into Christian, but he's very famous for a belief in that everyone should learn other languages and learn other people's cultures and religions on their own basis to be better Christians. That was really a big humanitarian goal of Raymond Lowe. So he was most likely just trying to show the beauty of Jewish thought by presenting it in a Christian context without giving it a Jewish source. On the basis of the alphabetical meditations involved in these figures, as well as other suggestive similarities to practices of ecstatic Kabbalah, scholars have been arguing for decades about whether Lull's apparent Kabbalistic affinities were the conscious result of real exposure to Jewish mystical sources or a more or less accidental result of his endogenously received Neoplatonic tendencies. So we've covered that. 
The most recent extended argument for the possibility of a real Kabbalistic influence on Lull is made by Harvey J. Hames in his book The Art of Conversion, which examines Lull's work against the multicultural conversations taking place in late medieval Barcelona, where Christians and Jews frequently came into contact. Of course, it's quite interesting. Look at the Moshe Adel uh, essay that I covered to see exactly how Lull did get Kabbalah, because all of this whole debate's now been cleared up by that brilliant scholar Moshe Adel. And here, Claire Fanger's equally brilliant. Uh, this was just something that hadn't been discovered. Lots to do in academia, folks. It's not all gender studies and critical theory, eh? Whether or not Lull consciously employed Kabbalistic methods, it is of interest that both Christians and Jews associated his work with Kabbalah. <laughs> There might have been actually common knowledge that he got it from Kabbalah in culture. It just was never written down. That, that could have been something everyone actually knew for a fact, just spoken about, never written. People didn't write everything back down in those days. Like paper was expensive. Not everyone could write. And if they did, the writing might not have lasted 600 years to present day. Almost 700 years now. Hames has uncovered a 15th century translation of Lull's Ars Brevis, into Hebrew, and he discusses this translation in chapter 7 of this volume. The translation, which apparently circulated among Jewish scholars in Pico's circle, attests to considerable Jewish interest in this Christian text, which surely derives at least in part from the fact that Lull's own concerns were already intercultural and universalizing. Lull intended, first and foremost, to facilitate conversion to Christianity by showing that the inherent nature of the Supreme Being was demonstrable through general principles acceptable to all three monotheistic faiths. These universalizing principles, however, seem to have made the Ars Brevis palatable to its Jewish audience, who felt from it no clear pressure to convert. Hames reads it, the colophon of this translation to show how the work's translator associates it with the moris osculi, death of the kiss or death by kiss, a term current in Kabbalistic literature deriving from a Hebrew commentary on the Song of Songs, and explores the implications of this translation in the works of the Jewish writer Yohanan Alameno. So, Johannes Reuchlin. The 16th century German philologist Johann Reuchlin had an explicit interest in Kabbalah and the linguistic abilities necessary to make a genuine study of it. He had taught himself both Greek and Hebrew and was an admirer of the Florentine Neoplatonists, with whom the Medici family surrounded themselves. The resuscitation of ancient learning appealed to him, and he was a follower of Pico della Mirandola. Reuchlin is responsible for two works that incorporate or depend on ideas found in the Kabbalistic literature at his disposal, De Verbo Merifico, 1494, and De Art Kabbalistica, 1517. The latter work was addressed to Pope Leo X, son of Lorenzo de' Medici, who was famous for, among other things, his uh, love of learning and had been schooled in the Florentine Academy. In the decade between 1510 and 1920, Reuchlin became embroiled in difficulties in Cologne, or the German city of Cologne, where he ran into conflict with the Dominican inquisitors for failing to side with them in propounding the need to burn Jewish books. Charming. Reuchlin's address to Pope Leo of this work on Kabbalah was evidently in part a bid to win his favor in the case by showing the applicability of Kabbalistic literature to Christian concerns. Clearly, Reuchlin's use of Jewish ideas 
had strategic elements, and it is not to be expected that his readings of Hebrew text would line up precisely with those of Jewish interpreters. But what was the real depth of his understanding of the Kabbalistic works he had encountered? Was he pushing their sense out of shape or out of context, whether deliberately or inadvertently, to uphold a Christian message? In chapter 8 of this volume, Elliot Wolfson, and he's amazing, Elliot Wolfson is up there with Moshe Adele, they're the top two guys, argues that Reuchlin understood the Kabbalistic text more deeply than is sometimes supposed. Mm. In a del delicate reading of Reuchlin's two Kabbalistic works, Wolfson examines Reuchlin's use of his Hebrew sources. He notes that Reuchlin does not escape the anti-Semitic presuppositions of his time. Like all Christians, he tended to read Jewish texts in terms of super supersession theology, but also that Reuchlin sees and deploys strong messianic threads that run through the Kabbalistic writings and that he does so in sensitive ways. In Wolfson's words, he astutely understood the intricate weave of prophetic visualization and eschatological salvation that had long characterized the mystical ideal proffered by Kabbalists. Reuchlin's messianic interpretation of Kabbalistic symbolism is not contrived or imposed from without. Fascinating. And just to remind some, uh, some lay listeners that eschatological refers to things concerning end times from the Greek eschaton. As was the case with both Ramon Lull and his Hebrew translator, a universalizing view of alternate esotericisms seems to be in play in Reuchlin's work, a desire to take learning into the realm of a deeper truth that may be manifest in the religious practices of one's neighbors. But Reuchlin pursues his, this desire through a genuine and learned engagement with Hebrew texts. Whatever eschatological presuppositions Reuchlin may have had about the role of the Jews or the superseded nature of their ceremonies, he took their learning very seriously indeed. Humphrey Gilbert. The 16th century witnessed an interest in the augmentation of knowledge of many kinds, the pursuit of linguistics, philosophical and mystical studies into uncharted territories was contemporaneous with explorations of the geographical world beyond its familiar perimeters. Humphrey Gilbert, colorful half-brother to Sir Walter Raleigh, wow, is a figure well known to historians for his military service to Queen Elizabeth. His discourse on the North Northwest Passage and his adventurous explorations of the New World he is fodder for the popular imagination as well, and his adventures at sea have inspired a number of fictional and semi-fictional works, including a poem by Longfellow, a 19th century children's story, and two novels of speculative fiction. For all his adventurous appeal, however, Gilbert's spirit-summoning diaries have had much less coverage, <laughs> no doubt. They occasionally garner brief footnotes in works on the more famous occult writings and practices of John Dee, and often go unmentioned in the popular and scholarly histories of his explorations. I wonder why. Unlike Gilbert's discourse on the Northwest Passage, which seems to have been almost continuously in print since the 16th century, the diaries have never been published. <laughs> it's amazing that we have them, though. In chapter 9 of this volume, Frank Klassen 
offers the first real analysis of this British Library manuscript in which the crystal scrying and spirit conjuring operations are recorded. Gilbert performed these experiments along with several other figures in his household, a group that included not only Gilbert's brother Adrian, but also a young John Davis, later to become the prominent Elizabethan navigator and Arctic explorer. Their story, as Classen gleans it from the pages of their diary, opens an interesting and informative window into the lives and thoughts and fantasies of these Elizabethan gentlemen. If you don't, if you haven't decided to go out and buy this book already, maybe now you have because I mean seriously, Claire Fanger has put together some of the best writers and scholars in the field to look at things that have not been looked at before. Their crystal scrying operations are contemporary with the better-known angel conversations of John Dee, which serve as a useful comparison. Both Dee and Gilbert had scientific interests that they pursued with some, the same zeal they brought. To, uh, to their conjuring experiments, but D seldom admitted to resorting to medieval tracts of magic either, of either demonic or angelic kinds, despite having many such books in his library. The Gilberts, however, recorded a systematic pursuit of practices found in medieval grimoires for speaking with demons and angels. The records made of their operations show both the free-form use of these materials and the extreme care with which they documented their visionary results. Classen positions the scrying operations of the Gilbert household in the context of their more widely known activities in the service of science and education, examining their anti-scholastic attitudes and experientially focused methods against the background of the social and intellectual history of ritual magic and early modern science. The very difficulty of trying to categorize the Gilbert's experiments as theurgy, science, mysticism, or magic shows how futile it may be to begin with a framework set up by such categories. That is such a remarkable point um, and a treasure to have that sort of thing in, in existence right now from practicing magicians from this period struggling against uh, pre-understandings and pre-categorical structures uh, because it's our prejudices that often affect our spiritual labors of any variety. Yet it is crucial for historians to be aware of the kinds of polemics that have been engaged in the vicinity of terms like mysticism and theurgy you think? And probably the term science, too. Mm -hmm. Especially as these may have operated around texts of Christian angel magic. These folks were bound by the same uh, Christian dualistic world as Aaron Leach's first book was, which he freed himself from uh, and is spoken of widely, of course, already. In what follows, I take some time to e tease out the implications of one particular important term for this book, theurgy. Theurgy, orientations and definitions. I note that not all of the authors contributing to this volume use the word theurgy to refer to the mode of religious activity in their sources, but many do. I note, too, that usages may differ from one essay to the next. I have not imposed any single standard of definition or usage, although I have tried to ensure that all terminology is made clear in the specific context where it appears. However, I want to devote some space 
to an unfolding of this term here in my introduction because it seems crucial that readers be able to position themselves quickly in relation to these different usages, whether pro-theurgic, anti-theurgic, modern, or late antique. The intellectual history of discussions of theurgy within and outside Christianity is long and complicated. The history of applications of the word theurgy to the kinds of texts under discussion here is relatively short-term, but it is all the more important to lay the groundwork for a set of relations between these ancient and current understandings of the term, because these questions that arise around them are crucial to the narrative arc that, in one way or another, informs all the essays in this book. Definitions of Theurgy a Greek compound that literally translates as God-work. The term is used in late antique philosophical writings in apposition with theology, God's speech, though many theologians also translate theology as God-thought because it's theologos, and word logos is really flexible in its, in its interpretations, whether it's speech or thought or other things. As George Luck puts it, Georg Luck puts it, theurgy was an activity, an operation, a technique dealing with the gods, not just a theory, a discussion, an action of contemplation. Even its original late antique context, the term theurgy suffered from much of the same kind of problematic construction as the word magic, and the two words have always had somewhat of overlapping semantic fields. In turn, theurgic practices, sometimes condemned and sometimes defended, became a topic of philosophical conversation and argument among the Neoplatonic philosophers. In addition to the historical, ethnographic sense of the word theurgy, in use by scholars attempting to reconstruct its original late antique contexts, the word has other senses in common use. Some further senses of the word in modern, mostly scholarly contexts include its use one, very loosely as a rough and ready synonym for magic, two, in a slightly stricter theoretical sense as a term for a special branch of magic that is applied to a religious purpose, the definition perhaps too influentially formulated by E.R. Dodds, and three, in a looser etic sense to refer to practices analogous but not necessarily related to the late antique Neoplatonic contexts in which theurgy originally comes up. In this sense, it has been adopted by some scholars of medieval Kabbalah and more lately by some scholars of medieval Christian ritual magic. I note here three elementary structural traits of the types of rituals that seem to be recognized in most contexts of the term's usage, whether positive or negative. At a basic level, theurgic operations, one, tend to involve rituals to, the, to affect the soul's purification, which in Greek we call, of course, theosis. So theurgy, for the purpose of theosis, is very commonly said. Two, tend to involve fellowship with intermediary beings, gods, angels, daemones. And three, tend to be oriented toward revelation, or experiences in which something is transmitted by the divine powers. In practice, this means that they may induce visions. I mark these traits only as broad, generic aspects of rituals that get called theurgic. They are not part of any definitive or essential early definition of theurgy. There is none. 
They are merely my own abstractions from a broad variety of contexts in which I have seen the word used. In the past, I have used the term angel magic to refer to medieval Christian texts such as the Ars Notoria that have these generic traits, and I will continue my occasional use of the term angel magic as well. It should be noted that these traits are functional, not theological. When theurgy is defended or justified in theological terms, different ideas come into play. For example, the idea that theurgy is necessitated by the weakness of the soul, or by the flawed perception of the soul in an embodied state, or by the idea that, a speci that specific ritual practices are part of God's plan, instituted by God to affect the human soul's return. The concept that theurgy names certain ritual practices justified by divine institution is key in the Iamblichian defense of theurgy, just as it is for ideas of sacramental action in the Christian tradition as informed by the pseudo-Dionysius. These theological associations are, in turn, a primary reason why Julian Veronese's adoption of this term to label the form of religious activity in the Ars Notoria. Christian Theurgy and the Ars Notoria, according to Julian Veronese. Veronese has a carefully explicated rationale for his use of this ancient term to refer to a medieval Christian practice, and it is worthwhile to reiterate some of his main points. He writes, Recourse to the notion of theurgy, to grasp the mode of functioning and the nature of the Ars Notoria, is thus only a convenient means of extracting this addressative practice from the demonological complex put in place by medieval theologians, following Augustine at the point where there is a question of signs addressed to superior intelligences outside a framework defined by the Church. As a methodological tool, it permits the creation, at the heart of the ensemble of ritual magic texts, of an objective distinction which, without being inoperative in the Middle Ages, was not thought of or formulated in these terms during this period. In other words, the advantage of the term for Veronese is that it is not emic. The semantic field he uses the term theurgy to cover is not, in fact, produced by the culture that he is addressing, though it has certain analogs that would have been recognizable to that culture. Veronese is well aware that there may be pitfalls in, in attempting to map a set of high medieval practices onto a set of late antique ideas, only notionally related to them, and he emphasizes that the analogy should not be pushed too far. He notes as well that the masters of the Ars Notoria themselves attempted to frame their work with the term sacrament, no doubt for some element of safety given the times. Veronese continues on the conceptual level, and whatever the Bishop of Hippo might say, that's Augustine, the affiliation in nature between theurgy and sacrament is incontestable. Jean Trullard, Jean Trullard, Trullard emphasized, for example, that if it abstracted from all context, the notion of theurgy is closely akin to sacrament in its functioning and prefigures by instituting an operative symbolism destined to rouse the divine presence and power. The efficacy of Christian sacraments, and particularly that of the Eucharist. I would note, however, 
that while the idea of divinely instituted operative symbolism is important in Neamblichus's treatment of theurgy, this treatment surrounds the idea with a worked-out theology intended to argue for its necessity. A theology by no means universally accepted by Neoplatonic philosophers or by those who interpreted Iamblichus later. Thus, the notion of theurgy cannot really be abstracted from all context without losing the very thing that makes it useful as a positive term. The affiliation between theurgy and sacrament lies not so much in any base abstract or essential idea of theurgy, as Trullard suggests, but rather in the habitual means of theological justification of efficacious salvific rituals within theologies having a monotheistic framework. Does everyone get that? So, Dr. Fanger's pointing out that the use of theurgy in reference to sacramental rituals or rituals that allow for some sort of purification, transformation, theosis within monotheistic frameworks, within monotheistic religions, you can't use theurgy just because it actually connects with those things. It's used in relationship to those things simply because it's functional as a matter of course when we're talking about these rituals. So it was a matter of common parlance, but it didn't have a endemic relationship to the rituals themselves necessarily. Veronese concludes this section by suggesting that the analogy with sacraments should not be pushed too far either. In fact, he believes that the masters of the Ars Notoria were careful not to be too precise in their usage, use of the term to describe the mystery of this ritual divinely received by Solomon. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, if you, if you get too precise about exactly what these uh, magical rituals are doing, you might get in trouble at some point when someone points out a theological uh, incompatibility or heresy in your thinking. So it's nice to be vague in a way. So using the term theurgy is actually quite effective because as it can easily be related to the idea of a sacramental religious ritual. So our are you summoning angels and spirits or demons as participating in a, a pseudo-Eucharistic or a redemptive sacrifice ritual connecting you with God in a pietistic way? Or are you doing something outside of the school of mainstream Catholic and Christian or any monotheistic religion um, that might be heretical or worthy of being killed for, um, but under the term theurgy, you're smuggling it into that idea of something that is... Uh, dogmatically okay. It's it's a tricky little dance they have to do at these during these years. Hmm. And uh, actually, and as Veronese points out, so the idea we have today that the Mass is the uh, an ultimate example par excellence of, of rituals or ceremonial magic isn't as strong as we might think just because these ancient grimoire writers and theologians were saying that theurgy is sacramental. Today we often have the idea that the Mass is the ultimate example of ritual magic. Many people say this, but what this academic is pointing out is that isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence. There never was that intention, and there is no real way to actually draw that conclusion. It's more just a matter of how the word is used in parlance, and it was probably used that way in common parlance to contribute to the safety of the authors and ritual workers who were bound by the possible punishment of falling into heresy. The funny hypocrisy of all of it is a lot of the, pretty much all of the mainstream religion and Christianity, especially at these times, was drawn from Plato or, or Aristotle, who were of course pagans. So uh, I wonder if they address that, but yeah. 
For one thing, as Veronese notes, uh, Solomon, the pre-Christian receptor of the text, does not offer a point of origin that can be expected to map cleanly onto the notion of sacraments instituted during the lifetime of Christ. Exactly. Even though the names of Christ and the Trinity do occur in the prayers. Yes. Whatever may be the case with the Ars Notoria itself, however, the idea of sacrament does get linked with medieval texts of this genre in the medieval period in ways that are sometimes more explicit and distinctive. For example, Peter of Abano, or Peter of Abano, brings forward the notion of sacrament explicitly in his early justification of the Ars Notoria. While in roughly the same time period Thomas Aquinas explicitly declares that the Ars Notoria is not divinely instituted and does not work like the sacraments of the Church. And as I note in my own essay in this volume, analogies with Christian sacramental theology are brought forward through the idea of covenant in two texts emerging somewhat later on than the Ars Notoria, but in the same tradition, the Liber Juratis Honori, which is coupled with the sacraments in my epigraph, and John of Morini's Liber Florum Celestis Doctrine. For good or ill, this is a thread that may often find itself woven into the tapestry of receptions and explanations of theurgy in the Middle Ages, as well as other periods. So Dr. Fanger is pointing out that um, if we use these terms as cognates, too loosey-goosey, then we're, we lose uh, some, some scholarly precision, and we also uh, fail to recognize some of the social, cultural, and theological contexts that they, these words would have been used by these people. Like Veronese, I see the utility of the term theurgy as a label for practices discussed in this book, in part because of the way the term both connects to and remains distinct from ideas of sacrament. Yes, exactly. Excellent. Unlike Veronese, however, I find it of interest not because it escapes the demonological problems associated with the term magic, but rather because on the levels of historical analogy, theological justification, and scholarly reception, it engages them in a certain way. Yeah, through the word theurgy, we actually get to understand some of these other terms uh, in a different light, in the, in the context of magic. That is, the theological problems relevant to the texts are analogous to those that tend to surface around theurgy in both patristic and pagan writings, and they usefully illuminate the tensions that come into play around the texts and practices under discussion here. Excellent. Dr. Claire Fanger is just one of my favorites. Christian Theurgy and the Problem of Magic, Augustine and Dionysius. As noted, the term theurgy has a long history of difficulty in Christian contexts, as a difficulty that finds articulate expression in the works of St. Augustine, who gave the anti-theurgic stance one of its most influential early formulations. While Augustine's general equation of theurgy and Goethe, demonic magic, is often quoted, indeed, is fam a familiar topos of scholarship on the Christian anti-magical polemic. Like many frequently iterated Augustinian ideas, it is not always well understood. It is worth looking at the context of these statements in a bit more detail. Augustine's one of my favorites who I've done the most research on of the patristic writers, so this is a fun part for me. 
in Augustine's writings, oh, if you haven't, if you want the best book on Augustine, read the biography on him, Augustine of Hippo. It's a brilliant biography. In Augustine's writings, theurgy is discussed extensively in the City of God, taking up much of books 9 and 10. In the context of a discussion of the pagan Neoplatonist philosophers, who were, in general, very important to Augustine, who had apparently been instrumental in his conversion from Manichaeism, and whom he clearly continued to admire despite the critique he proposes here. Much of this section of the book, in fact, amounts to a close mapping of Neoplatonic thought onto Christian thought, at the same time showing up points of deviation where they occur. And they are very interesting, the, the points of deviation. He notes that the need for mediators between the human and divine is acknowledged by both pagan Neoplatonists and Christian thinkers. And Augustine's arguments point in the direction that God intended us to have one mediator, Jesus of Nazareth, who was simultaneously human and divine. And the real and historical existence of this ideal mediator effectively rules out any possibility that the angels would be intended to perform the mediation leading to salvation. This is a, a point that I, I've done a lot of work on, actually, because it, it not only it looks at two things, it looks at how, the, how grace and how God comes to us, and also the, the being of Jesus Christ. So the loose equ equation of Jesus and God is actually not so simple as it might seem. Jesus is man and God is not something they just said he is or he is not. They said either Jesus is man and God or Jesus is like man and God. Very important distinction that was quite debated and led to uh, pretty much almost schisms. Um, but the homoousius, Jesus is man and God, and the homoousius, Jesus is like Man, is God man like man and God? And the other issue is, how does the Holy Spirit transmit to us? Um, and this was the big debate that divided the Eastern Orthodoxies, the traditional churches from Rome, because they believed that the Holy Spirit descends from God to us. But the Ro Roman Latin Church believed that it had to go through Jesus. And that's the filioque controversy, because filioque just means and the Son. And uh, that's the debate that uh, really, uh, you could say, is the biggest divide theologically, even in a way to this day in Christian theology, because whether or not you can just experience this Holy Spirit from God directly and mystically is something that the Eastern Orthodox churches still maintain vehemently, and it's why we have these beautiful writings like the Philokalia and these other ideas of the Christian Shekhinah uh, coming straight to us without needing to pray to Jesus, versus the Latin church that became, you know, the, the church to promote Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only way. And uh, all of this led right up to the Vatican II issue with uh, the church sort of coming back from some of that stuff, saying they could know God without Jesus, sort of, if you're a tribesman in the desert or if you practice another religion. And Vatican II says that, of course, after Vatican II, Pope John Paul II even rolled that back. So they're changing their, their mind all the time. They're not really immutable at all. The tenor of this argument thus suggests that he sees theurgy as a pagan attempt to achieve through angels an equivalent to the mediation that Christians achieve through Christ. The primary claim about pagan theurgy that Augustine was refuting or revealing as different from Christian lines of thought in the same area was the idea that theurgy could access any effective kind of divine mediation. The spirits invoked 
and addressed could not be efficacious either for the process of the soul's cleansing or for its eventual salvation, both because they are not God and because they are not human. And so if it doesn't come through Jesus in the Latin church, in the Roman church, that wouldn't count. But in the Eastern churches, of course, if it's just coming, the Holy Spirit can come straight from God, and the Holy Spirit is a, something that might be interactable through with these other spirits, angels, demons, or whatever, um, then it's open for more question. It should be noted that Augustine equates the gods of the Platonists with Christian angels. That's cool. And says that it makes no difference whether you call them gods or angels, because the concept is the same relative to the supreme God. So the fact that Augustine says that is something that's vastly misunderstood all the time, I believe, especially when Augustine's being used as a cudgel to whack those who don't get in line with uh, dogmatic Roman Catholicism. His eventual equation, equation with theurgy, of theurgy and demonic magic, or Goethe, is thus really not a simple equation of pagan gods and Christian demons, but a more complex argument about the philosophical assumptions underlying the theurgic spiritual cosmology. Yes. For Augustine, theurgy seems to imply a worship of creatures, which at best amounts to angel worship, which misunderstands the true worship of God, of which the angels themselves could not approve, because it has to go through Jesus in the West. Yeah. Moreover, Augustine is unable to countenance the idea that angels might be subject to conjuration or passable, quote, perturbed and agitated by the emotions which Apuleius attributed to demons and men. This is from Augustine. If angels in their divinity must be seen as sharing the impassibility of the Godhead, the corollary is that any passable angels actually encountered by practitioners of theurgy must be demons. <laughs> because of this, and making the most of unresolved queries about the nature of the beings described as accessible to theurgic techniques in Porphyry's letter to Anibo, Augustine maintains that theurgy in practice is not really distinguishable from Goethe or demonic magic. Even though Porphyry agrees that magic might work some kind of purgation of the soul, according to Augustine, quote, he does so with some hesitation and shame, and denies that this art can secure to anyone a return to God. In deference to the coherence of these objections, the Latin Christian tradition after Augustine eschews the Greek word theurgy, except as the name of a demonic practice. Because that's what we do. We use Augustine when we need him and throw him out and ignore him when he's inconvenient. <laughs> he's, the, he's the great cudgel of Western theologians. A more positive idea of theurgia, if not the word itself, enters the Christian tradition by another route, however. The word theurgia and its compounds occur between 40 and 50 times in the Greek corpus of the Pseudo-Dionysius, roughly half of these in his liturgical commentary, The Ecclesiastical Hierarchy. Like Augustine, Dionysius clearly views God's incarnation as the most important act of mediation between humankind and God, the act by which human salvation was intended to be effected. Unlike Augustine's, however, Dionysius' terminology for this divine mediation is the terminology of theurgy. God's incarnation, his entry into the world, is his original theurgy on our behalf. Yeah, the supreme exemplary act the, 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 that which we all replicate through anamnesis. 
recreation and return to, a theurgy that is forecast in the Old Testament, consummated in the New, and represented and celebrated by the sacraments which enable the imitation of God. Yeah, there we have it. We are initiated into these theurgic lights, Augustine says, grasping them, or is that Dionysius, whatever, in the best way we can as they come to us, wrapped in the sacred veils of that love toward humanity with which scripture and hierarchical, hierarchical traditions, i.e. liturgies, cover the truth, truths of the mind with things derived from the realm of the senses. In other words, instead of thinking of theurgy as a religious practice involving angels as divine mediators, as Augustine did, Dionysius thinks of theurgy simply as a practice involving divine mediation, and adapts its application to Christ and the Christian liturgies. See, but neither of these, Dionysius or, nor Augustine, are considering the necessity of a filioque intermediary. And as you see from the text, it's more often that Christ is used as the, the uh, authorizing name and power to command these beings to go intermediarily directly from God to us and back again. The difference between Augustine, in that way actually Christ is sort of like a, a Hermes Thoth psychopomp returned that we uh, use to jump between the mortal and divine realms, actually, if you think of it that way. That's some controversial theology for you. Or uh, maybe not so controversial if you've read the Imitatio Christi. The difference between Augustine and Dionysius in regard to their terminology for Christ's mediation is perhaps most simply understood as a product of the fact that Augustine had a strong philosophical affiliation with Plotinus and does not reference Iamblichus at all, whereas the pseudo-Dionysius was apparently familiar with the works of Iamblichus, the deft philosophical apologist for theurgy, and seems to have been influenced by him in his view of anagogical uplift, which he adapts for Christian use. Of course, the, of the four ways to understand the Bible, the anagogical is the spiritual or mystical way to understand scriptural or divine writings, as opposed to literal, historical, or analogical. Thus, Dionysius was intimate with and thought in terms of an already fully theologized concept of theurgy as divine action, whereas Augustine did not. What is important, at least for the subsequent destiny of the term theurgy in medieval Christian culture, is that the Latin translations of the pseudo-Dionysian corpus, the word theurgia, it never appears. It is always rendered as some version of divine, divina operatio, or operatio dei, operatio dei, which medieval readers would not have recognized in the Latin translations of this corpus as the same term equated with demonic magic, Goethe, by Augustine. So there you have it. Words get moved around so that we avoid getting into trouble and, you know, sort of make vague, more precise definitions, again, for our own openness to whatever meaning the, the reader needs to apply. So a magician or Christian faithful person practicing theurgy would be very different from a dogmatic church theologian or an Inquisition member trying to make sense of whether something is heresy and condemnable or not. Iamblichan and Dionysian theurgy according to Gregory Shaw. While this is a straightforward explanation of the absence of any positivized version of the word theurgy in medieval sources, it may do less to explain the continuing resistance to the word in scholarship throughout the modern period. 
This resistance is probably due not only to the power of Augustine's voice, but also to the continuing of the problematics of theurgic rituals as at least potentially implying a passable godhead. Issues that Augustine was neither the first nor the last to finger. <laughs> oh, Dr. Fanger, what a great <laughs> turn of phrase. Oh my god, I'm not even going to cut this. I just I just love the idea that she got to interweave into her hardcore academic writing the phrase that Augustine was not the first or last to finger regarding the Godhead. Oh, dear Lord. Uh, does this need an explicit rating now or not? I don't know. Scholars have shown a special discomfort in dealing with the use of the term theurgy in the corpus of the Pseudo-Dionysius because of the difficulty in divorcing this term, on the one hand from its Augustinian association with Goethe, and on the other from E.R. Dodd's similar but differently motivated association of Iamblichan theurgy with irrationality, superstition, and spiritualism. Yes, yeah, so one of the important things about this writing she's done here is, is given us a clear sense of understanding the term in these different contexts because it's these different hermeneutic approaches which allow us to read the different texts without sort of superimposing the improper definitions and therefore misunderstanding. Because if Augustine eventually ended up always meaning theurgy was Goethe, demon, demon work, that's problematic. Then you read other Christian things influenced more by Pseudo-Dionysius that where that term was distinct from that and where Dionysius meant something very different. Successive generations of historians and classicists have attempted to shore up a set of essential theological distinctions between the theurgy described by Iamblichus and that espoused by Dionysius. Over the past two decades, however, these apparent differences between Dionysius and Iamblichus have gradually broken down, as scholars have gained an increasingly solid grasp, first, on the full extent of Dionysius's debt to Iamblichus, and second, on the fact that Iamblichus himself never espoused a theurgy of human action upon God. That's probably one of the most misunderstood things in popular writings and references to Iamblichus. Two landmark articles by Gregory Shaw have been useful in clarifying the way the problem of theurgy has emerged both historically and the late, in the late antique context. And historiographically, in the scholarly context that have been built around it, in a 1985 article, Rituals of Unification in the Neoplatonism of Iamblichus, Shaw cast the first line through the, his argument about the nature of Iamblichan theurgy, not as a human action upon the gods, but as a divine action divinely instituted by God to enable the human souls return to him. That would be a, a theosis argument as opposed to a sort of thaumaturgical one. He also offers a historiographic overview of the gradual emergence of more positive and accurate ideas of Iamblichian theurgy from the more negative but still influential views propounded by E.R. Dodds in The Greeks and the Irrational in 1951. Shaw notes that Dodds was a lifelong member of Britain's Psychical Research Society and attended many spiritualist seances. Dodds explains the sacred rites of Iamblichus' school by comparing them to modern spiritualist phenomena. For Dodds, theurgy was the spiritualism of late antiquity and represented the corruption of Platonic rationalism with oriental superstitions. 
This may overread Dodd's lack of sympathy for the irrational motivations both of spiritualism and of theurgy as he understood it. Nevertheless, it remains true that Dodd's ideas about Iamblichus as purveyor of magic applied to a religious purpose seem to have remained influential somewhat past the point of their greatest utility. Yes, he was, he was too burdened by the spiritualism of his time for his interpretations to really be helpful to us in understanding older texts, and especially source texts today. So, Claire, Dr. Claire Fanger right there has confirmed with uh, Shaw that we need to throw out Dodd's sort of definition. In another important article published in 1999, Neoplatonic Theurgy and Dionysius the Areopagite, Shaw continues to refine his arguments about late antique theurgy, pulling together the issues already shown to be at stake in treatments of Iamblichan theurgy and showing how they have colored the reading of Pseudo-Dionysius. Summing up all the difficulties that have emerged around the Dionysian vocabulary choice, Shaw writes, If Dionysius practiced theurgy, it would present a serious challenge to his orthodoxy, for to have been a theurgist in the Neoplatonic sense would condemn the Areopagite in the eyes of all scholar apologists. It is not surprising, therefore, that his theurgy has been described by two leading Dionysian scholars, Andrew Louth and Paul Rorim, as fundamentally different from Neoplatonic, i.e. pagan, theurgy. While Shaw makes a complex argument in this article, one of its central nodes is the overturning of Paul Rorim's distinction between subjective and objective genitives. Rorim suggested that Dionysius used the term theurgy to mean work of God, not as an objective genitive indicating a work addressed to God as in Iamblichus, e.g. De Mysteries, part 2, 7, 2 to 6, but as a subjective genitive meaning God's own work, especially in the Incarnation. This is actually a really important point that comes back in with the phrase uh, righteousness of God or God's righteousness or Christ's righteousness in, that I learned uh, when I was studying with Lloyd Gaston, the great Lloyd Gaston, who taught me about Paul for, uh, in, in grad school, uh, who really changed Pauline theology and our interpretation of the Greek forever, and it changed Christian theology for all time. Um, the way understanding that that sort of grammatical issue. It's, these are really important things. According to Shaw, this is a misreading, for even in Iamblichus, theurgy is not a work addressed to the gods, either in the place cited or elsewhere. For Iamblichus, too, the subject of the ergon theo must always be God. In fact, quote, Iamblichus clearly states throughout the De Mysteries that Theurgy was not an attempt to influence the gods, not only because it would have been impious, but impossible. Iamblichus is unambiguous on this issue precisely because the De Mysteries was written to address it. Boom. If there is no cogent reason for treating Iamblichian and Dionysian theurgies as being based on opposing theological principles, then the primary difference between them boils down as I have noted earlier, to an understanding of what divine mediation must entail and the corollary location of symbolic liturgies in an arena suitable for commemorating the entry of the divine into the world. 
Following James Miller, Shaw points out that liturgical-theurgical symbols for Dionysius are no longer found in the natural world, but in the ecclesiastical world. Quote, While Dionysius preserved the Neoplatonic dynamics of prohodos and epistrophe that are ritually enacted in Iamblichan theurgy, it, in its Dionysian form, the natural cosmos is replaced by ecclesiastical and angelic orders. This means that Dionysian theurgy is no longer an extension of the act of creation, in analogia with divine creation, but becomes something beyond or beside nature, in what the Church calls the new creation, the supernatural orders of the Church and its angels. If Shaw is correct in his assessment of Iamblichian theurgy, his work would seem to lay to rest any idea that theurgy in the, is the work in the work of either of these important late antique thinkers involved a human attempt to manipulate or influence the gods. Yet it is pertinent, and remember gods also means angels in this context because they're, you know, blah, blah, Augustine. Yet it is pertinent to remember that the arguments laid out in Porphyry's letter to Anibo against which Iamblichus and Augustine both so crucially reacted in their different ways, did embody a discomfort around the issue of the possibility that humankind could influence the divine. This problem is perennial and may not be subject to a final resolution. At the very least, the recurrent pitching of this accusation against those who defend a positive notion of theurgy suggests that we may not have seen the last of it. It is of interest to note, however, that in the current usage of some scholars of Jewish mysticism, theurgy is still taken to mean an operation intended to influence the divinity, a usage conspicuously defined and adopted by Moshe Adel. I wonder why he did that, but him doing it certainly makes it conspicuous. What could be going on in that Kabbalistic mind of his? Shaw sees this as a simple capitulation to Dodd's definition. Ah, of course Shaw would, because he's just trying to make his argument and without reviewing any nuance of the scholarly field or the source text. Come on, Shaw. Thank God for Claire Fang or just getting, making Shaw and Dodd's make sense, but also showing where one is just getting polemical and close-minded. Close-minded in a scholarly sense, mind you, lacking in detail, not close-minded in the sense that he should be more, uh, you know, believing of everything. But it is a de- demonstrable that while it may begin in the same place, the definition goes beyond Dodds in several ways. The Jewishness of theurgy, according to Moshe Adel. Yes. Before I even get into this, that's one thing I've just been chomping at the bit to talk about, but I knew it was coming, is the fact that all of these Christians and pagans talking theurgy without reference to the Hebraic source, which, of course, you know, we all know where the Hebrews come from and the different cultures they drew their religion from and spiritual practices and magic from, you know, to talk about Christian or, or pagan, the Amblichian, Dionysian theurgy without reference to the older sources is ridiculous, or as we would say in academia, a surd. In the scholarly discourse surrounding Jewish mysticism, the term theurgy is used in ways that are not always consistent, but they do all have one thing in common, the idea that theurgy is a component of a specifically Jewish religiosity, alien to Christianity. Darn tootin'.
Moshe Adel's understanding of the word is elaborated at some length in chapter 7 of his Kabbalah, New Perspectives. For you guys out there, that is required reading along with his Absorbing Perfections. If you haven't read those two books, talking about Kabbalah is just a waste of your time. Not really, but sort of, like seriously. Adel argues against Sholem's assumption that the ritual of rabbinical Judaism was free of myth and mysticism, which were infused into it by Kabbalists. Yeah, the fact that Sholem always thought that Judaism happened sort of, and its rituals happened sort of in a vacuum, was always just so obviously a notion of his time in which he lived in the sort of early, the modern structuralist thinking. It really does. This is one of the, this is such a good example of where postmodern thinking led us to better scholarship, not better philosophy and us shaking old structures up so that we could make it mean whatever we want, but postmodern post-structuralist in the sense that we un, you know, rejected base assumptions of structuralism and, and classical uh, scholarship on certain grounds, grounds that would allow us to more accurately understand the context and consider things like, oh, maybe Hebrew religions and practices were influenced by mythological sources from other cultures. Maybe they even burned cannabis on their altars. Oh, I don't know whoever would think of something like that. And certainly it will never be proven by altar scrapings, will it, Chris Bennett? <laughs> Jeez. So, <laughs> I'm having fun now with this one, aren't I? Um, so, Idel argues against Sholem's assumptions that the ritual of rabbinical Judaism was free of myth and mysticism. Yeah, again, why Sholem thought it was free of mysticism. What, what a liturgist or dogmatist. It reminds me of some GD people out there. Which were infused into it by the Kabbalists. Yeah, so it's the idea that only later Kabbalists, because Kabbalists didn't exist actually before Christ. Kabbalah and the Tree of Life developed later on based on Merkava mysticism and the Wheel of Ezekiel and all these other things. Rather, he argues, theurgic tendencies have always been present in a certain stream of rabbinic Judaism. Quote, Crucial for my point is the emphasis upon the theurgical nature of the commandments, as against other significant ancient rabbinic tendencies that were indifferent to, or even opposed, this evaluation of the performance of the commandments. The term theurgy, or theurgical, will be used below to refer to operations intended to influence the divinity, capital D divinity, mostly in its own inner state or dynamics, but sometimes also in its relationship to man. In contrast to the magician, the ancient and medieval Jewish theurgian focused his activity on accepted religious values. My definition accordingly distinguishes between theurgy and magic far more than do the usual definitions. In the footnote attached to usual definitions, Idel cites only Dodds. But Idel's definition is idiosyncratic, not so much because he, as he states it, distinguishes it distinguishes between theurgic, theurgy and magic far more than do the usual definitions, but more because by theurgy, Idel does not primarily mean to indicate a set of ritual practices analogous to late antique theurgy. Rather, the word theurgy points in Idel's usage first and foremost to an idea or proposition about God. The proposition that the divine is a dynamic entity in need of human inaction in order fully to inhabit its correct relation to itself. Yes. Brings us into all kinds of ideas like tikkun and stuff, and the Sefer Bahir and Yetzirah. 
Sefarim Bahir Netzerah, sorry. In the section of Chapter 7, titled Augmentation Theurgy, Idel discusses the interrelation between human acts and the augmentation of the divine dynamis, Gevurah. And the great interpretation of Gevurah as divine dynamis. As a key concept of rabbinic literature, Idel focuses on the assumption pres- present in certain classical Jewish sources that the power of God is weakened or diminished by human transgression and augmented by the proper performance of the commandments as an illustrative locus. He quotes the Pesikta Darav Kahana. Pesikta, Pesikta Darav Kahana. Azariah, he said, in the name of our Yehuda Bar Simon, so long as the righteous act according to the will of heaven, they add power to the dynamis, to the gevura, that is. And if they do not act accordingly, it is as if you have weakened the rock that formed thee. Wow, reference to the rock really uh, <laughs> rings uh, a lot of Christian ideas to mind uh, with Peter and Petrus and all that. But again, yeah, how, the idea that we, we try and understand some of this stuff without looking at a real Jewish scholar who understands the corpus of their literature, which predates Christian and even a lot of pagan literature, is foolhardy. We have to look at these, these scholarship of, 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 other, of these people from other religions that influenced ours, or whatever ours is, or whatever yours is, you know, just scholarship in general. The notion that the quantity of power or glory of divinity has a dependence upon human action, Idel argues, is not a Kabbalistic novelty, but has always been present and integral to a certain stream of Jewish thought. So he means going way back. For the Kabbalists, however, the notion that humans could and indeed needed to influence intradivine processes was the archimedal point for the articulation of a full-fledged theurgical theory that interpreted the performance of the commandments as necessary for the divine welfare. More than once, Idel refers to this theurgic concept as mythic, a term that is necessary for his argument against Sholem. In fact, however, in being a proposition about God, it is more essentially a theological than a mythic point. This definition of theurgy is shared with some scholars in the area of medieval Jewish Kabbalah, though others dealing with similar materials do not use the term at all, or seem to use it in a more conventional or simply less well-defined senses. As already noted, Shaw cites Idel as one of an array of scholars who have adopted Dodd's characterization of theurgy as an attempt to manipulate, influence, or coerce the gods. Ooh, Shaw takes a little hit at Idel there, hey? However, though Adele does characterize theurgy as an operation intended to influence the divinity, his idea is actually distinct from Dodd's inasmuch as his definition of theurgy is not a capitulation to a stream of practice that happens to exist despite rationalist prescriptions, but is ra- a rather a theological representation of the role of human religious action in relation to God's dynamis, which is, again is gevurah. In fact, theurgy is not quite fully read as coercing or constraining the divine because Idel quickly moves to the idea that this human influence on the divine is actually part of what he calls an intra-divine process. So we're not doing, we're acting on God or from God, but within God in a way. You could could sort of say that. The implication being not that God is influenced by a humankind whose will and action are held to be 
external to him, but rather that God and humankind are both involved in a single system. Yes. And this is what, in my book, The Ethics of Understanding God, I really take him out, is the supernaturalist tendencies in Christian theology and reinterpreting them uh, more accurately, I think, in a naturalist and ecstatic naturalist process of participation. And for that, of course, I use hermeneutics and semiotics. As Idel uses the term, theurgy labels a conception of hu- the human relation to God which has always existed and which needs accounting for. He states that this theurgy is not a Kabbalistic novelty, ra- but rather a continuation of authentic rabbinic traditions that are organic to Jewish thought. And of course, when he says that academically, he's, he's making a slight gesture to indicate that the age, how, how, how old such things would therefore be since they're just, since they're nascent to the practiced and oral tradition of the rituals of Jewish people, going back to Egypt and Babylon and all these other places. Thus, it cannot really be said that this, his notion of theurgy is nothing more than a reproduction of Dodds, no doubt. Shaw sounds like a moron. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. Come on. It's a long day and it's over 100 degree heat, so forgive me. In one sense, it may be said that Idel positivizes the radical aspect of the theurgic idea from which others try to escape when they seek to justify it. I like that. Dr. Fanger, you are the bomb. In another way, however, Idel's definition of theurgy addresses, if idiosyncratically, a difficulty that everyone else sees too. The difficulty of conceptualizing the human relation to God that is implied by religious action when that action is conceived as necessary to anyone. Awesome. For even if religious action is only necessary because human souls are weak, how could God be conceived as not waiting the return of every created soul? But also, how could God be conceived as wanting anything at which we ourselves could fail? So... If we're all returning to God and need to perform a certain way to return to God, why would God put us, test us and allow for a chance for us to fail? And uh, why, yeah, why would God create a hurdle that we might not succeed at? If theurgy is defended as a divinely instituted action put in place on account of human necessity acting upon the soul alone, the problem appears susceptible to resolution. But it is not a perfect resolution, inasmuch as from either a Jewish or a Christian perspective, it is evident that any human being can choose not to be saved, can break the commandments, live an impure life, and ignore all God's work on his behalf. There is bound to be occasional anxiety about the fact that the, of these failures on the system in which God and humankind appear to be so closely linked. Uh, of course, in ancient Jewish thought, the idea of, of, of uh, Sheol as heaven or hell, or heaven and hell, was very different than Christian thought of heaven. It was just sort of a place described to me by a rabbi as meh. You're there, it's like meh, it's not good or bad, which is why they emphasized so strongly the, the importance of life in this world and not the next. And early Christians, of course, didn't believe in the immortality of the soul at all. They didn't believe that your soul went to heaven and stuff like that. That was not part of traditional Christian thinking. Early Christian thinking believed in the immortality of the body, basically a kind of zombie resurrection of your physical body. Um, That is how early Christians conceived of salvation, believe it or not, like it or not. Idel's source texts may suggest an anxiety about this that runs through Judaism. 
It must be recognized, however, that save for putting his finger on this theological anxiety, what he calls theurgy here remains distinct from what others have used the term to mean. That's fair. Of course, it might just so he might just be pointing out that all these later interpreters from Augustine to Iamblichus and Pseudo Dionysius and, and Origen and everyone had already changed the meaning of the word from the context it would be used in in traditional Judaism, even pre-Kabbalistic, stemming back to the earlier ancient cultures that Judaism sprang from. A primary difference is that he does not, at least in this key locus, appear to refer to any of the structural indices I noted at the outset that trigger use of the term theurgy in other contexts. Purification, fellowship of angels, revelation... His understanding of what constitutes the organic Jewishness of the theurgic concept then also differs from what others have understood by it. In order to understand the initial championing of theurgy as a quintessentially Jewish religious form, we need to revisit its beginnings in the works of Gershom Sholem. The Jewishness of Theurgy According to Gershom Sholem I want to start off by saying I do love Gershom Sholem, and he was like the first one I read all the works of um, back in the early 90s um, before I studied with uh, the Hasidic rabbi in Vienna, um, Jonas and Gershom, who ironically is from California, but I ran into him at a lecture he was giving at the Walder School on Reincarnation on Hasidismus, focused on what he believed was reincarnated souls from the Holocaust, who he was working with throughout the States. Anyway... Interesting guy and a great uh, teacher for Kabbalah. I believe he has some works out there. Gershom Sholem's circums... Circums... I almost said circums... Circum... uh, (laughs) Gershom Sholem's circumscription of the term mysticism is the first chapter of his landmark work, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, has in fact been a major influence on the way theurgy has been adopted as the defining character of Jewish mysticism a character that has not changed despite the way this concept has been in many ways crucially reconfigured by Edel. Sholem's enterprise explicitly involves recuperating the domain of Kabbalah. On the one hand, from unsympathetic earlier historians who dismissed this magical literature with too little examination, and, on the other, from occultists like Elephus Levy and Aleister Crowley, charlatans and dreamers, whose magical sympathies did little to recuperate its reputation as a serious religion. This is, of course, Sholem calling them charlatans and dreamers, I believe. Setting his own work as a scholar firmly apart from that of both anti-magical and magical students of Kabbalah, Sholem begins by elaborating a concept of mysticism that he adapts to cover the Hebrew texts in which he is interested it is sort of what's sort of necessary for him to do that, of course, to free Kabbalah from Elephus Levy, Aleister Crowley, and, and then all the other scholars who just wrote it off. Following Evelyn Underhill and Rufus Jones, mm, Sholem begins by defining mystical religion as a type of religion which puts the emphasis on immediate awareness of relation with God. Sholem goes on to distinguish Jewish mysticism from the Christian variety, as propounded by Jones and Underhill, first and foremost on the grounds that Jewish mysticism is not primarily interested in the unio mystica, which is mystical union. Jewish mystics are more apt to speak in terms of ascent of the soul, the ascent of the soul to the celestial throne than divine union. 
If there are also Jewish apophatic mystics who do seem to be more interested in mystical union, according to Shulam, this is the same experience which both are trying to express in different ways. Thus, anagogical processes are elided with mystical union, which is a concept Shulam then allows to drop. As far as Shulam is concerned, in regard to Jewish mysticism, all paths were equally mystical insofar as their objective was some sort of immediate awareness of relation with God. But his immediate interest is in the stream that pertains to theurgy, understood within the boundaries of the functional sense outlined above. Of course, Christian angel magic may also be accused of lack of interest in unio mystica, or alternatively of a positive interest in visionary knowledge. And there are a number of other features Sholem indicates as distinctively characteristic of Jewish mysticism that are shared by Christian angel magic too, including its trope of Adamic knowledge, its positive view of the power of language, the fact that it is typically written and practiced by men rather than women, and connectedly, according to Sholem, the lack of any trace of effective piety in it. Of course, the, I think with recent discoveries in the last 20 years of archaeological digs by, uh, I can't remember the doctor, the archaeologist from Duke University, discovering all the magical tools in the women's quarters in every single hut in an ancient Israelite village, I think that's that would be considered overturned. But that archaeological study was presented to my class uh, by the Duke professor, and I don't think it got, was able to get published for another 10, 15 years. I don't know. That's Academia is slow. Throughout Sholem's discussion, however, he also insists on the importance of configuring all mysticisms in their historical context. Because of this, the centrality of all these strands of Jewish mysticism is established and has largely been construed since as if it were part of a historical distinction between Christian and Jewish religion, rather than a difference between the way in which scholars of Christianity and scholars of Hebrew and Judaic studies have constructed the term mysticism in the former case as excluding, and in the latter as including, theurgic practices. As the present volume shows, there is really no dearth of this sort of thing in medieval Christianity, but it has never been conceived or studied as part of the domain of mystical religion. It was excluded from this category before Sholem ever adapted the term to cover Jewish theurgy. It is only beginning to be taken seriously enough to be studied at all. In fact, the situation from which Sholem endeavored to rescue the Kabbalistic texts for serious study 60 years ago is very much parallel to that of medieval Christian theurgic texts until recently. That's a very fair point. At this point, as many scholars are recognizing the need for a more serious account to be taken of neglected and marginalized strands in religion, we may wish to think about broadening the study of Christian mysticism to include texts like the Ars Notoria, the Sworn Book, and the Liber Florum of John of Morigny. If we do so, we are likely to find that some of the base criteria for what makes a mystical text look Christian or a Jewish will require further refinement. It may be added as well that there is surely room for this expansion in a field that has, since the time of Underhill, which is who my doctoral dissertation with Goodrick Clark was on, developed an increasingly nuanced understanding of what constitutes religious experience and a more solid grasp on the role played by devotional practices in focusing and interpreting such experiences. 
since some of the theurgic apologetics already explored can be seen to have other or broader applications to the study of religion, it is to be hoped that by drawing attention to these aspects of a largely ignored medieval theurgy, this book will begin to open out new connections between the texts and the study of other forms of religious practice. Dr. Fanger, Invoking Angels, a book worth getting. She edits it and the essays in it from a wide variety of wonderful scholars. If you don't want to get that, well, you're, you're nuts. Get, get the book or check it out. Um, as well as I recommend Moshe Adele's books, Kabbalah New Perspectives and Absorbing Perfections. Cheers. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk